Welcome to the Good Idea Podcast. The premise of this podcast is that in each episode, we unpick a concept or practice in ESG and sustainable business. We explore whether it works, whether we see the need for course corrections based on our experience handling these issues and in practice. In this episode, we're going to be asking the question, whether ESG is a good idea, whether ESG as a compliance and risk management framework is fit for purpose, and then whether it lives up to the spirit of ESG as a driver for more sustainable business. So I'm going to welcome today for this episode, Phil Davis, who's Director of ESG at Helios Partners. Welcome, Phil. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what Helios does and what your mandate is there? Yeah, no, absolutely. So Helios is a B Corp certified Africa-focused private equity firm. My role as director of ESG is to oversee ESG across all of our funds from a risk management perspective and also from a value creation one. We have about sort of 20 portfolio companies and about a sort of $3 billion sort of AUM. My role also extends into our climate fund, which is an Article 9 under SFDR climate impact focus fund. And I spend a significant proportion of my time supporting the investment team on that fund. A little bit maybe background on me. So uh, prior to Helios, which I joined about two and a half years ago, I was at the Carlisle Group as head of sustainability for EMEA, working on sort of their sort of European buyout, renewables and sustainable energy funds. And prior to that, I was at PwC for 11 years in their sustainability and climate change team in London, uh, where I worked with a sort of range of private equity and development banks. And then finally, I just mentioned this year, I just recently joined the PRI's um, private equity advisory committee, which is, you know, alongside others looking to shape sort of the ESG and impact agenda across, across the industry. From a GP point of view, but also, you know, navigating different um, types of investee strategies and investee companies. And right now yeah, at Helios, you're very focused, obviously, on Africa. And that's a market where your investee companies maybe have a less less direct engagement or experience dealing with ESG as a compliance and risk management framework. Is that fair to say? Yeah, no, definitely. I think we've been focused on ESG risk management from about 2008, largely driven by the DFIs, who are you know a mainstay investor in, in, our, in our funds. Also acknowledging the sort of the lack of sort of maybe local regulation and real sort of deep understanding of some of these issues and the importance of managing them and how to manage them. So I think we, you know, that has been a particular focus of ours, but obviously, you know, this whole agenda has developed quite a lot in recent years and we're now seeing ESG not being just a lens for sort of compliance and risk management, but actually a lens for sort of value creation and also thinking about what is the sort of impact that we create by deploying, you know, private capital into Africa. And the way you've been working at Helios is a really unique approach to that. And I definitely want to talk about that. You talked about going from that compliance and risk management focus to more value creation, but obviously with regulations like SFDR and those sorts of things, there's also increasing pressure from a regulatory standpoint to comply with disclosure and reporting obligations. Do you see that burden growing or those obligations growing in terms of you know the time and resources that you can take as a GP in terms of evaluating and managing risk? The short answer to that is absolutely, without doubt. You know, we've seen, you know, new regulation from the EU, such as the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulations, SFDR, you know, 
funds now having to label themselves, depending on you know your focus around these sorts of issues. It has created quite a lot of, I think, uncertainty. And you know, a lot of people who are in my sort of situation, my peers, are all sort of, you know, trying to understand what are the requirements, what do we need to do, how do we, how do we tangibly you know, comply with this, these regulations. I think generally most people don't want to be associated with greenwashing or impact washing and want to actually do the right thing. Um, but obviously you want to do that in the most effective way possible. And I think what's been quite interesting in recent months, we've seen quite a large number of sort of funds that were previously labeling themselves an article nine, you know, reclassifying themselves now as article eight. I think that's kind of come from a sort of greater understanding around the sort of the requirements, the burden, and really ensuring that you're marketing in a way in terms of what you're doing and that you can really stand behind what you're doing as well. Yeah. And for people who are less familiar with the specific articles, see article nine is impact funds, a lot less clarity around what that means. And so obviously a little bit of a nervousness and, and some fear in the market about exposure to greenwashing by labeling your fund article nine. And that touches on, I guess, the heart of what I wanted to draw out is that slight tension between the compliance and risk management aspects of ESG as a framework and a model and the spirit of those frameworks, really which drive towards stronger performance on social and environmental factors and performance improvement, not only in your own activities, but I guess in the people and environments that you serve. So, you know, when you're looking at funds backing down from Article 9 and reclassifying as Article 8, which is still good, do you see that tension between compliance and value creation or compliance and performance? Or is that just, you know, temporary glitch that's caused by a difficult compliance environment? I think ESG risk management's just becoming sort of, this is the sort of, you just have to do it. You know, you have to ensure that people are working safely, that there are good working and labor conditions, that you're not polluting, you know, near to where you're operating, et cetera. I think those sorts of things now, especially in developed markets and, and even in developing markets as well, you know, the expectation is, you know, you're managing these issues. I think what's maybe changed in recent years is that ESG is is now being used as a sort of a lens for value creation. So when I think of ESG from a value creation perspective, I, I kind of put it into four buckets. So one of those is around sort of operational efficiency. So how do you increase the operational efficiency of, of what you do? So that might be reducing the amount of waste you create, using the amount of inputs into your business. Ultimately, that leads to sort of reducing costs and hopefully increasing profitability. The second one is around increasing um, productivity. And for a lot of businesses, that is the productivity of their employees. So how do you engage with your employees? How do you incentivize them? How do you get the best out of them? And there's growing evidence that shows that increased productivity leads to better financial outcomes. Just recently, there was a study published by Bain and Co and EcoVardis. You know, EcoVardis assesses 100,000 companies and, you know, they, they were able to identify clear link between increased 
revenue growth and profitability to employee engagement. The other bucket is brand equity. So I think a lot of companies are doing some great things, but often not very good at actually communicating and talking about those things and, and actually getting value from those things. And then fourthly is customer satisfaction. So it's like thinking about what are the products and services that your customers are gonna want either now or in the future? And are you as a company you know, catering for those needs and thinking about those and developing the sort of products and services that they're gonna want? You know, we see, you know, Gen Z, for example, has a very different mindset and view in terms of what they want from businesses and who they want to work for. And I think, you know, these are things now that, you know, aren't just from the risk and compliance are moving into sort of the value creation and, and the boardroom in terms of having these sorts of conversations. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a really clear and, and strong presentation of how you're approaching value creation. It would be great to hear a little bit about how you have you know, flowed that through to either like portfolio selection or working with your investee companies to kind of get to them understanding those principles and then performing against, I guess, KPIs or however you're setting them out for them. Yeah, and no, absolutely. So, you know, we do ESG due diligence on every investment that we make. That is often quite focused on the risk management side of things to make sure that is all in order. But actually in, in the last couple of years, we've incorporated value creation identification as part of that. And those initiatives will typically then feature within sort of a, a value creation plan, which we agree with the company at the start. And then obviously going forward, part of my role is to sort of engage with the portfolio companies on any sort of one, corrective actions that are identified through the sort of more ESG risk management review to also ensuring that we're delivering against the value creation initiatives as well, which obviously we will track during the whole period. And then obviously increasingly we are tracking a broader range of ESG metrics and KPIs, some of those linked to those regulatory standards and requirements such as the principal adverse indicators or PAIs. And we're now collecting this data and, and using that as well as a, as a sort of a lever for identifying value creation initiatives. And I think as we will, in, you know, going forward, we'll see more sort of benchmarkable data. And I think we'll, you'll be able to get a better understanding of how your companies are performing, how that then compares to, to their peers. And I think, you know, as you then start to think about, you know, what is the exit story for this business and who are the types of investors you want to exit to, this sort of, you know, ESG and sort of impact story or narrative that you want to present to those investors is becoming increasingly more important. And actually, we've just actually exited a business where we did our first impact vendor due diligence, the first time we've ever done that. And it was it was a really good opportunity to present the sort of, not just from a, and we, we did actually also do an ESG vendor due diligence, but I think the impact one was particularly interesting just because it was able to present a sort of very, you know, largely a positive story around what the business was doing and the contribution it made sort of societally in the opera in in the countries in which it operated in and that was you know seen as important by the investor who's actually come into that business and you know I spoke to my peer there and they said that they did use that information it did go to the investment committee and you know I think it all helps to sort of position the the company in a, in a positive way. In a much more attractive way, yeah, I guess, it, as well. It's hard always to sort of proportion value to sometimes these things directly. But ultimately, it's all about, you know, 
inherently, is it presenting the, the company in a, in a proper way? Does it show that this is a company that one is managed well, it's doing good things? You know, an investor coming in is thinking about oh, how, who am I going to exit this business to? You know, those sorts of things start coming to front of mind. And, you know, I think there is a growing pots of impact capital out there and increasingly opportunities for companies to maybe access that. And increasingly competitive pool yeah. of impact capital. Absolutely, it is. Um, hence, I guess, the attractiveness or why funds were initially going for Article mm. 9 to try to capture that. I'm really interested in you saying you did impact vendor due diligence and ESG vendor due diligence. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit, at least at high level, how those differed? Yeah. So the ESG side of things was focused more on that sort of, you know, compliance, risk management. Do they have the right policies, procedures, you know, reporting in place, essentially? And is there anything that, you know, the company will need to do or work on potentially in the future? On the impact side, it was more about kind of how many customers are they supporting? How do they help the customers to achieve, for example, higher yields? How does it help its customers to access, you know, clean water, for example? And how much of the economy is actually supported by this business? So it is a different sort of take on, on the business and what it does. It was actually done by the sort of commercial DD advisor because we felt that actually they had the best sort of look and overview of the business from that perspective. But it was just shining a slightly different lens on what they were doing already to something that was actually, we see as increasingly more important, especially in the, in the markets in which we operate in. And it sounds like you were assessing much more against those value creation strategy points that you'd set out from the start rather yeah. than ESG standards, you know, as, as, as set out as a risk management yeah. model. Uh, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I think you know, a lot of people think ESG and impact are separate. Yeah. And I guess how I've just described it as we did two <laughs> different engagements does, does appear that way. But I do think ESG and impact in some ways do interlink in a lot of ways. So even from the sort of, you know, climate perspective, you know, you have a company that, you know, has climate risks and you need to manage those climate risks. And, you know, it might have also opportunities to you know, reduce emissions or increase energy efficiency. That's a sort of value creation driver from an ESG perspective. But actually by avoiding those emissions, you're actually having a sort of impact, you know, societally, um, mm -hmm. a positive one, which you should also talk about as well. So these things are not just like separate, you know, aspects. Yeah. They have to be considered holistically together. I think increasingly we'll see that in the future. And I think, you know, I think there'll be greater emphasis on the acknowledgement that companies, you know, have both negative and positive impacts, negative being a little bit more on the sort of ESG side of things and the positive hopefully being more around the sort of the broader social and economic, you know, positive impacts that a company can create. And I think it's going to be about how you tell that story in a compelling way. At the moment, people don't like to talk about negative impacts and, you know, maybe rightly so, but, you know, I think, you, you know, do it in a compelling way. You do need to think about it holistically. And I guess one of the risks in just going down a impact route without any reference to ESG frameworks and standards is you can tell a story and you can tell really any story in any which way you want. But it sounds like certainly from the way you've set out your approach, the value creation and, and impact objectives do derive from 
ESG principles in some way or they're connected to those. So the way you're setting it out almost sounds like you're identifying where there's upside potential or improvement potential that's still grounded in those kind of key environment and social indicators. Absolutely. And I, I, you know, I would say to anyone you know who's listening that, you know, be cautious in your approach. Don't overstate what you're doing. You know, work with partners that can help you to come up with reliable information and data that can be backed up in the event that there is any challenge. And I think actually with more data, you know, becoming available, going into the public domain, we are going to see the increased ability to do that in a more reliable way and also probably see more sort of third-party verification of that data and information as well to give it that credibility. But, you know, in terms of where we are now, I think just err on the side of caution a little bit, but, you know, also don't shy away from talking about what you do as well. I was going to ask you actually what your experience has been related to PA, principal adverse impact disclosure. How reliant are you on your investee companies? How has that been in terms of, you know, accessing good data or information from them? And have they gotten better at it over time? Yeah. So I'll caveat this slightly in that none of our funds yet have had to comply against the yeah. PAIs, but We've got a, as I mentioned, yeah. Article 9 Climate Fund that will. And I've certainly done a lot of thinking around how we're going to sort of approach this. We introduced at the start of 2022 a set of ESG metrics across the portfolio, many of which I sort of, you know, aligned to the PAIs in recognition that I knew this was coming and something that the companies would have to report against. But I have to admit, I, I did slightly pick and choose by what I thought was most relevant at the time as we weren't caught by the regulation. Because I, I do think there are some challenges, certainly for maybe certain types of businesses. So for example, you know, collecting water and waste data for an office-based company that doesn't have sub, you know, water metering, it doesn't have its waste sort of weighed or et cetera. So, you know, I knew there would be challenges from the portfolio companies around collecting that sort of information. Not saying it's impossible. Of course, you can do that. You know, there are sort of office averages in specific locations where you can kind of get a sense of that. But actually, that doesn't necessarily consider what the company is actually doing and ensure that you then start taking credit if you do start actually introducing initiatives to sort of reduce those those things. So in some ways, the metrics that we did introduce, I think have been received really positively. We had sort of an 80% response rate to a lot of those metrics, which actually I was quite surprised That's about strong. considering the, the markets in which we sort of operate yeah. in. I do think that, you know, there are some, so for example, gender pay gap is a slightly challenging one, but, you know, I feel quite passionately that if you want to sort of be really credible in the DNI space and make a positive difference, then this is an important metric to track. And, you know, there was a little bit of hesitance, a bit of reluctance. How do I do this? Why are you asking me for this? But actually, you know, I think, you know, it is important to engage on these things to actually, you know, test, you know, the company's thought process and encourage them and also show them that understanding this information is going to help you run your business in yeah. a better way yeah. um, and to manage those sort of risks and issues and create value for, for the business. Ultimately, if you're attracting the best talent into your business, that's that can only be a positive thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you're involved, I guess, in introducing the concept of some of those things as value creation in a way that they hadn't, you know, maybe heard about or, 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 or talked about internally at their, at their companies before. Absolutely. Um, 
Do you feel like GPs now are going to be able to kind of shift to managing those ESG compliance issues and risk management issues and value creations better more generally? Do you think there's like a, a trend at all or do you really think it depends on investment strategies based on what you're seeing out in the market? I think it very much depends on investment strategy. Yeah. The focus of the fund where we know where it's looking to sort of focus the markets in which you're operating in as well to a certain extent and the, and the maturity of the companies that you're investing in. You know, sometimes we invest in a company that is really at the start of its journey and you can't run before you can walk. And it's those sort of baby steps of, okay, we need to get these certain sort of maybe more compliance focused areas in place first before we can then start thinking about, you know, being a bit more forward leaning on a diversity perspective or on a net zero perspective or in, in other areas. But obviously with a, you know, a company that has, you know, is more advanced from that perspective, you know, it's, it's a great opportunity to start engaging with them on some of the more interesting areas that, you know, we're seeing. Yeah. And in some of our past conversations, we were talking about some of the companies that perform really well on ESG markers and, and frameworks, but maybe from a kind of impact mm. lens are not so hot. So, uh, you know, in, 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 in the Africa market, which is massive and very diverse, I'm sure there's a lot of that where companies can get up to speed with the, some of the compliance and risk management aspects of it, but still will be operating in markets that are extractive heavy or have difficulty accessing the kind of infrastructure they need to improve on their emissions performance and, you know, are still negotiating complex social impacts. You know, have you seen, uh, have you seen, say, Helios consider investments where actually those two worlds collide a bit too much for your risk appetite or conversely, where you see a real opportunity actually in, in, yeah. in changing the impact side of the business through ESG? When I think about that, you know, the Helios investment strategy, you know, we more targeted now on a, on a smaller number of sectors where actually not only this is where we see the sort of business opportunity in Africa uh, and the opportunity to obviously deliver, com you know, competitive commercial returns for investors, but it also, you know, leads its quite strongly into sort of an impact story and, you know, growth of impact is, you know, part of, you know, what we're trying to deliver at Helios. You know, if you look historically at our funds, you know, we have invest in, invested in sort of oil and gas businesses previously. You know, we will continue probably to invest in gas because we see gas as an important transition fuel for Africa. Oil, you know, we won't be investing in going forwards. I think what's always quite interesting, and, and you mentioned around sort of the ESG ratings, and I think there is a bit of a misunderstanding of what the ESG ratings essentially do because people look at them and they see, say, the oil and gas companies performing very well. And, th and that is because the oil and gas companies really understand their risks and they are very good at managing them to as low as, as, as possible. You know, whether it's policies, procedures, management systems, reporting, you know, it is ingrained in how they operate as a business. So therefore, they score and do very well on those ESG risk ratings. You know, those ESG risk ratings don't consider what is the inherent impact of of the business on society on on the planet 
Whereas obviously, you know, SMB removed Tesla and and people were shocked because obviously why would Tesla be removed from an ESG index? Well, you know, to me, you know, Elon doesn't seem like the kind of guy who probably is that focused on management systems, policies and procedures and is mm-hmm. more focused on creativity and changing the world and doing that as fast as possible. And, you know, that might have something to do with why you know, Tesla isn't in those indices. But, you know, and I think that's why it is important to really understand that when you look at these things. And, you know, would it would it be great to have some kind of impact in, index or something like that? Yeah, absolutely. Is it quite a challenging thing to do? Yes, it really is. Do I think it will come in the future? Yeah, I I think it will come in the future, maybe a a few years away, but I think, you know, at some stage in the future, we'll have that. Yeah, a a rating system that gets a bit more on balance, evaluations. That looks, that takes the data and actually can sense that benchmarking performance, understanding, you know, in this country, you know, pollution or economic contribution has this impact in that, you know, some of it's local, some of it's global, depending on what the issue is, but there will become ways of how you kind of get to some kind of evaluation or comparison of that. Like a risk-led approach to it. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think eventually that will come. Yeah, It's not quite there yet, but I think, you know, and that will provide a lot more clarity and actually will help to drive, improve performance, behaviors, and things like that in the future as well. Well, actually, so you're picking up performance and behaviors. So because of the way that Helios' strategy puts these questions sort of up front because of the purpose that you set out, looks to me like there's much more of an opportunity to, say, evaluate a potential investee companies or their management team's appetite for taking on some of these 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 elements that are so important and and thinking about impact and performance. Is that part of what you look at up front? And is in how how easy or hard is it to assess that? Yeah. So from an ESG perspective, we do a sort of, as I mentioned earlier, an ESG due diligence assessment mm-hmm. on every investment that we do. And then on an annual basis, we do an ESG review of the companies. And actually just recently I, I started to use a sort of independent ESG rating sort of agency, Ecovardis, who mm-hmm. are sort of private markets focused. And that does help us to sort of get a sense of how the companies are performing and also against their sort of their peers as well, because they have a lot of benchmarkable data because they do this on a hundred thousand companies. So that is very useful and, 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 you know, very helpful in terms of how we sort of benchmark and assess the companies. I think from a sort of an impact perspective, as part of the, the work that we've done for the climate fund is try to come up with a really robust approach for how we're going to assess climate impact and ensure that we're delivering against our sort of environmental objectives that we've set as part of our sort of article nine strategy. And that looks at sort of both quantitative and and qualitative. It looks at kind of what is the feasibility of the company being able to achieve this? What is the sort of, what are any barriers? Our management bought in. I think in most cases they will be because it's part of what they do. But you know, you know, we're looking at and evaluating all of these things, and that will go hand in hand in sort of the investment decision making process. So this will all be done sort of pre due diligence, and you know, looking at kind of what is the sort of the avoided emissions on a per unit basis, and 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 mapping that against what is the sort of commercial projections of the business, and then obviously post investment, we'll be looking to sort of actually track that 
at a very granular level, ensuring that, you know, what we presented to IC, actually the company is delivering against. Mm. Yeah. I mean, expect that's going to take quite a lot of management teams sleeves rolled up and really getting involved. And how do you anticipate the kind of the social factors being taken into account for the climate fund? Because clearly, you know, there's a there's an obvious prioritization there, but still, particularly in the markets that you operate in. Yeah, so for, for the climate fund, obviously, it has an environmental focus. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our two objectives are commercial return and, and climate impact. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that we're not considering the sort of the social side of things from a, both from a, a positive impact perspective and also from a negative one. So, you know, we see this as an opportunity to sort of increase energy access, to increase jobs and economic contribution, to ensure that women are also part of the energy transition and and the move to sort of a low carbon economy. So, you know, as part of how we will sort of track, you know, against each of those, We've sort of aligned sort of where we think sort of areas of development impact, you know, to the SDGs and where we think we can make a contribution. We will be tracking those metrics, but also actually using that data and, you know, engagement with the companies to come up with, you know, strategies for how we can improve how the companies are performing from those perspectives. But obviously, you know, del- you know, delivering of climate impact and 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 obviously financial return is, you know, a primary focus as well. Sounds like it's the beginning of a very exciting journey on that fund for yeah, you. Hopefully. Um, and probably quite an involved one. Will you be doing a lot more traveling with the man- where the investment team is be doing a lot of a lot of one-to-one engagement, face-to-face engagement? Well, uh, you know, as a climate fund, we are trying to be conscious about yeah. our own <laughs> carbon footprint and only traveling where we really need to. Um, yeah. so there is aspects of sort of balancing those those two things. You know, we're conscious of our own carbon impact and, you know, we'll be tracking that as well and thinking about ways of how we reduce it. But obviously, you know, engagement with the companies is important. And, you know, we believe by because the, you know, the business strategy is inherently integrated into sort of the delivery of climate impact that by expanding, growing these businesses, having successful businesses will ultimately lead to sort of better sort of outcomes. And in an Africa context, you know, you know, people often say to me, you know, why, why are you focused on, you know, Africa from a climate perspective? You know, it's, it's associated with such a small proportion of the climate impact. It's, it's something, it's estimated something like less than 4%. But if you look at the demographics of Africa, you know, it's going to be 2.4 billion by 2050, 4.6 billion people by 2100, a growing middle class. Unless we address, you know, the Africa challenge and make sure that the growth of Africa is done in a low carbon way, there is no way we will meet net zero, you know, if the US, Europe, other parts of the world are able to deliver against that. You know, if Africa doesn't engage in this whole agenda, then we will fail. So that's why we feel it's really important that, you know, Africa, you know, pivots to sort of a low carbon economy. In a way, actually, no other maybe continental part of the world has done before. Do you know what I mean? And but that's not unusual for Africa. Africa is not done, unusual for you know, Africa. It does a lot of things early. Differently, yeah. you know, telecoms went straight yeah. to mobile, not to landline. You know, there are a lot of unbanked people that went straight to online banking, you know. Africa does tend to do things differently. And I think this is another opportunity for Africa to do that. And it's exciting. 
So at the beginning of this conversation, we were asking whether ESG is a good idea. And what I meant by that is ESG as a risk management framework and a compliance framework and whether that can overshadow the purpose for which it was sort of set up, meaning performance, better performance by companies against social and environmental indicators. You've set out really compelling view of how Helios approaches this a bit differently. And it would be great if you can just kind of give us a sort of summary of, you know, what your view is on how to get that balance right between the risk management and compliance essentials, which you've said already is, you know, you can't get around it, you've got to do it. And really focusing on getting that performance out of companies and performance improvement and value creation. Yeah, I think you probably won't be surprised, but obviously I'm I'm not a sort of anti-ESG movement as we've seen in the US perspective. You know, I think ESG ultimately is, is a really good thing. It has its place. I think in terms of your question, I think you know, you have to sort of adapt and tailor your thinking or strategy to where the portfolio company is in its journey. And I think that that's really important. You know, whether you're in emerging markets, whether you're in developed markets, I can guarantee there will be companies that are different stages. And I think it's really important to sort of do that. And, you know, for some companies, you're going to have to try and make progress a lot quicker than maybe with others who are performing very well. I think, you know, what I generally try and do where possible is put in the sort of ESG architecture within a company. So, you know, have an ESG board representative, ensure that ESG is discussed at the board once or ideally twice a year, establish an ESG committee. If you can have an ESG pers dedicated person or someone that's part of their role. And often by doing that, you put in, you know, sort of the infrastructure to deliver ESG for the company to start to do it themselves. And then I become more of a sort of advisor to help them to sort of progress and move forward. Whereas, you know, if you don't have that, you just feel like this person is just pushing down on the portfolio company all the time. Do this, so do that. You're trying to bake it into corporate governance a bit exactly. more. Exactly, bake it yeah. into the corporate governance, uh -huh. the organisation. I think, from my experience, doing that is is really effective. You know, we've, as I mentioned earlier, have have introduced the sort of ESG risk rating through um, Ecovardis. And I've seen that as a really useful tool for incentivizing the companies to sort of improve. They want to do better next year. They want to get that bronze, that silver, that gold medal, and they want to be able to put it on their social media. So it's funny how, you know, you can find little ways just to incentivize individuals, management teams to improve. And actually, it does start to actually make a tangible difference over time. As we know, it's all about incentives. It is, yeah. It also sounds like you're getting the balance right between being ambitious and realistic, which yeah. is which is great. This has been really insightful. Thank you so much for your your time and and yeah, and for the chat. Great. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe. And be sure to check out our other podcasts as well, such as Decrypt the podcast making sense of the cyber and technology issues impacting business. For all our analysis and information about services we offer to organizations worldwide, visit controlrisks.com.